Hello and welcome to So It's a Show, a podcast where we attempt to keep up with Lorelai and Rory's pop culture references on Gilmore Girls. I'm Taylor. And I'm Kyla. And welcome to episode 60! What, what? Yes, it's another milestone for us. I love milestones. Yeah, this does feel like a milestone. Like, we hit 50 and you're like, oh, that that's that's pretty impressive. Wonder if they'll even continue. And yes, we did. <laughs> Yes, we are officially three-fifths of the way to 100. Nice. Yeah, we're past that halfway mark. Whoop, whoop. I see us hitting that. Easy. Oh, for sure. Like, next week. Let's just record episodes nonstop for another week. Sounds great. What if we had, like, a podcasting marathon? Wouldn't that be kind of fun? I'm down. Let's do it. Let's just hit record and see how long it goes. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> I need some more water. <laughs> Yeah, we might have to make a few pit stops along the way. Yeah, but I mean, marathon. It just, I'm in the marathon mode. Stranger Things marathon. Woo! Veronica Mars is coming out soon. I'm excited for that. I have never watched Veronica Mars, but I've heard so many good things. I am definitely going to be watching it once it is on, is it officially on Hulu now? Yeah, the the original three seasons are on Hulu, okay. and I assume the follow-up movie is as well. Okay. The crowdsourced one? Wasn't that fan-funded? Yeah. Good job, mm. fans. I wasn't a part of that fan group, but I'm a, a fan now. Yeah. They are making their way back, just like Gilmore Girls did. It's the thing to do. Yeah, it really is. And I'm not upset about it. It's fun. Mm-hmm. I, I know. know. I'll embrace it. As long it. as you go into it with a grain of salt, knowing it may not be perfect, yeah. just enjoy it while it lasts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of our favorite brought back to life through streaming show, maybe we should do a best worst? I'm about it. The best, you know? The worst. <laughs> so today on our little segment of You're the Best, You're the Worst, we gotta find the best and worst of something that is actually really integral to Gilmore Girls. Sometimes we're reaching a little bit for the connections between Gilmore Girls and our no, topics. never. Uh, okay, sure, I appreciate your enthusiasm. However, today is very integral to the storyline across all seasons of Gilmore Girls. That is the best and worst stories that Rory wrote as a journalist. On Gilmore Girls. Mm -hmm. We've gotten to learn about a few. Of course, we've never been able to read a full article written by Rory, but true, we've heard the discussion around them. Mm -hmm. So I think we have a good sense. Yeah. Let's start with the worst. Kylo, what's the worst story you think Rory wrote on Gilmore Girls? The worst story she wrote... I guess it would have to be the review of the, uh, how you say, elephant dancer? Ooh, or yeah. was it a hippo? I think she used the word hippo. Yeah. So that one was in college, and it mostly seemed like she was trying to write in a that way because she thought she should, and she was supposed to, and she mm -hmm. took the terms that her mom pulled out, and... It just, it didn't turn out well for her. What did you write? Well, I brought it for you to read. Tell me what you think, because my picky editor loved it. I mean, loved it. Sure, sure. This is very weird. Very weird. <clears throat> Whoa. What? Well, you really hated this ballet. Well, we both really hated it, remember? Yeah, I do. Jeez. Oh, no, come on. Well, this is just so harsh. Again, you were there. I know, but there's something about seeing it in print. People don't write as mean as they talk, except you. I wrote what I felt. The roll around the bra strap? That was your line. It was? I'm awful. And it's not even critical of the ballerina's skills. It's critical of the costumer's skills. I know, but it sounds like she couldn't fit into a standard leotard. She couldn't. But again, the costumer should have put her in a larger leotard. Do I see the word hippo coming up? Okay, give me the paper. I'm sorry. It's just so specific. It's what I saw, so I wrote it. That's what the editor told me to do. Well, then you did the right thing. I was too harsh. So that was just probably the worst one. It wasn't her, and it gave her an enemy. 
Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Which is the episode that Paris starts to think. She goes, oh, no, I can list off all my enemies. <laughs> Who wrote this? But there is a reason the name of that episode is Die, Jerk. Yeah. <laughs> what about you? I think the worst story that Rory wrote, the worst Rory story <laughs> is one that she tries to write in season five about illegal downloading. Oh. <laughs> Which, let's see, this is well into the 2000s by this time. Mm-hmm. This is not a new story, and I don't think it's anything unique to the Yale College campus at that time. Right. So it's a little weird that she would choose it, and it's not that interesting, and it's not going to really change any students' minds. It's just an observation. Yeah. And so when Rory realizes it's a dead end... Doyle's basically like, yeah, I already knew that. <laughs> hey, Doyle, I think I want to change my story. Yeah? Yeah, the downloading story was a dead end. There's nothing there. You're telling me. What? I got bored just hearing you pitch it. So I feel like Doyle should have maybe stepped up as an editor and let her know, this is not the best story to pursue. At least she figured out, this is not going to be a super interesting story, and they moved on. Come on, Lori. Yeah. Find a better angle. Yeah, because, I'm although supposedly, pirating is back up these days because of so many different streaming services so it kind of went down because people had access to more but mm -hmm. now that we have you know amazon hulu and netflix all passing around shows apparently pirating is back up interesting it just yeah. seems unnecessary now yeah and i mean with disney is about to take who knows how that'll change it all so i mean i was okay with you know eight bucks for netflix a month but now there's Hulu and I got to get Amazon Prime and, mm. you know. I see what you're saying because there's so many streaming services now. Mm -hmm. It's almost like paying for cable. Funny how that yeah. works. Yeah, it's going to end up being like the same <laughs> price. Wow. But at least you don't have to call the cable service. True. Just, yeah. Example, side note, I would love to watch the new Jordan Peele version of The Twilight Zone, but I really don't want to pay for CBS All Access. Yeah. For one show. Seems unnecessary. No. So if any of you have suggestions for how I can legally watch The Twilight Zone, please let me know. <laughs> so, best article. What, what do you think? I think Rory's best piece was back in high school. And it's not so much for the piece itself, but about how she was able to turn a terrible situation <laughs> into one that got her some high praise from the teacher administrator of the newspaper. And I'm thinking of when Paris dished her that terrible parking lot story. The repaving. And yeah. Ugh, like, that's such a terrible, boring story. But she somehow made it a piece that really moved her audience. Well, I've read everyone's article, and they were all extremely well done. Snappy, informative, well-researched. Paris, you should be very proud of the team you've assembled here this year. Thank you. I mean, when you've got a reporter who can take an incredibly mundane and seemingly unimportant subject, like the repaving of the faculty parking lot, and turn it into a bittersweet piece on how everybody and everything eventually becomes obsolete, then you've really got something. Miss Gilmore, I was touched. I owe it all to Paris. I would strongly advise that next time you give Miss Gilmore something with a little more meat to it. Oh, yeah, great idea. Taylor, you stole the words right out of my mouth. Oh, bummer. Just it seems like an article I would love to read. Yeah. And if she could do that about paving a parking lot, it seems like she could have done it about illegally downloaded music. True. Mm-hmm. So, uh, there's our best worst. What episode are we talking about today? The episode of Gilmore Girls we are talking about today is Gilmore Girls 315 Face Off. And no, it is not the one with Nicolas Cage and John Travolta. Wah, wah. What if we had decided to watch that movie instead for this? That would have been an experience. Oh, yeah, we didn't do that. <laughs> we didn't even think about it, did we? No, and honestly, I'm not sure it's really a reference to that movie, although maybe we could do a bonus episode determining that. But don't they say, like, 
Oh, I get it. Face off. Face off. <laughs> What's that from? Is that from Gilmore Girls? I don't know. Because there sure are what... two. I just remember in a show there are two characters and they were like, oh, I get it. Face off. Face off. Like they were figuring out what the title meant. That their faces come off and they're facing off. Face I don't off. feel like it is. Oh, so what am I thinking of? I don't know. I don't know. I'll have to look that up. This episode aired February 18th, 2003. And the IMDb plot summary is, Jess said he would call Rory, but he doesn't. So (laughs) she goes to a hockey game where she sees Dean with his new girlfriend. Uh Uh-oh. Oh, but not as big an uh uh-oh as Trick surprises Richard and Emily freaks out. Quite (laughs) the freak out. Yes. So who faced off in this episode? I have a feeling they're talking about the Stars Hollow High hockey team, for one. And mm-hmm. maybe Emily and Trix, for two? Yeah. Maybe... Well, I guess Lindsay and Rory didn't really have a face-off, but a kind of teenage girl, unspoken face-off. Yeah. Which is how a lot of female conflict works, I think. Yeah. Which I'm okay with sometimes. <laughs> I don't want to hit anyone. Yeah, I would prefer not to do that either. Yeah. Or or to get hit. That that would mm-hmm. also be bad. Yeah. <laughs> Glad we can agree on that. Yeah. We'll just go on not settling our issues with outfist fights. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. While we were watching this episode, we found two references that we were both stumped by and then we found they had a connection they are both journalists so today we are tag teaming two journalists much like rory and paris are tag teaming journalists in many episodes (laughs) though to my knowledge these two have never met in real life (laughs) susan faludi and miss manners susan faludi gets uh, a name drop when rory and lorelei are talking about just not calling her Lorelai points out to her, hey, Dean and Jess, different people with their own pros and cons. Although she was probably <laughs> saying that Dean had more pros than Jess. <laughs> yeah. We know which team Lorelai is on. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Here's the conversation. Most of us didn't have first boyfriends like Dean. Most of us had first boyfriends like Brian Hutchins. Brian Hutchins? <sighs> Seventh grade. Sitting in the library. Walks up. Asks me to go steady. I say yes. He walks away, and I don't see him again until the 10th grade when he tries to sell me a dime bag at the Sadie Hawkins Day dance, and he was way overcharging for it, too. That's demented. But that's what most of us had to put up with. But where do you think the Susan Flutie's of the world came from? So, Susan Flutie. Ever heard of her? Heck no. That is not a name I am not familiar with at all. I feel like you would remember if it was. Flutie. So fun to say. It is. So, Susan Flutie, I had also not heard of her. And now, I feel like, I hope uh, I hope it's not like some of the politicians I talked about last episode, not knowing who they were, pioneering women politicians. Because Susan Flutie, pioneer feminist. So, she released a book called Backlash in 1991, and it was a big deal. Did better than she thought it would. Backlash, the undeclared war against American women. So what Susan Flutie was seeing was that women had made a lot of progress in America as far as rights and recognition and things like that. But then she started seeing this backlash to that progress that was taking women back to where they started. And that's obviously not a good thing (laughs) to take steps backward. So she wrote this book. It came from her first hearing to some different statistics that were being used in a twisted way, you know, not giving full context or were incorrect, which I feel like we are just bombarded by studies all the time that come out. And we're like, what does that even mean? That is a true story. (laughs) It's yeah. So it's so hard to know, like, marijuana it causes you to be more angry and marijuana it calms you down like it's just studies show studies show it i don't know i guess we're all gonna have to smoke it and try it no I'm 
<laughs> do what you want. Yeah, take away from this podcast, <laughs> everyone start smoking marijuana. Smoke weed every day. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. That's not really the message of this podcast. Okay. Yeah, no. Moving on. So she read a Newsweek cover story, a 1986 cover story. That was showing that the prospects for women finding a spouse after 30, I think it was, a single educated career woman over 30, it's like chopped in half once you hit that point. And Mm -hmm. I think I've actually heard this before, that once you hit 30, 31, suddenly like the chances of you getting married, oh yes, it was the chances of you getting married are lower than you being killed by a terrorist. And that is... This is a question I have. Is that a real statistic or is that an urban legend? Because I've definitely heard that. It's in the movie The Holiday. Cameron oh, Diaz yes. says, we look haggard because we're less likely to get married than we are to get killed by a terrorist. Is this an urban legend or is this a real story? It was a statistical error. Not correct. Oh. came from Harvard-Yale, a Harvard-Yale study. Ouch. Come on. Coincidentally enough, Susan Flutie went to Harvard. Oh, almost like Rory did. Almost. Yeah, so she was like, huh, I wonder if there's any other statistics that are just outright wrong. And guess what? She found a few more. Uh So this is an interview from C-SPAN in 1992. And she gets into, Susan gets into a little bit other lies that she'd been hearing. And furthermore, there were a host of problems with the study itself, with the uh, sample, with the way that the the model to make these projections was set up. And the Harvard-Yale researchers ultimately retracted the statistics themselves. This, however, got no front-page coverage. And so I began to, that that was sort of the beginning of um, my thinking about, well, if this study is invalid, why was it so eagerly embraced by the media? And furthermore, what about all the other popular claims about the plight of the modern liberated woman? Um, such claims as the infertility epidemic, that women who postpone childbearing for education and jobs were uh, facing this terrible um, uh, plague of, of um, infertility and we're all f- you know, rushing to the infertility treatment centers. Well, it turned out that that too was a myth that in fact women, particularly uh, educated women who most profited from the women's movement, um, were the very women whose infertility rates were declining and in fact across the country uh, nationwide, women's infertility rate um, was declining, and it was actually men's infertility rate that was on the rise. And so you go through these, and each of them, the so-called women are all returning to the home, the mommy track tale was, was a myth as well. You know, women were flooding into the workplace, and on top of that, when, when surveyed in public opinion polls, uh, women uh, said over and over again in increasing majorities that they did not want to go back to the home and they did not want even part-time or less pressure jobs, that they wanted more advancement, more opportunities, uh, more power. Susan Flutie, her voice is, she does speak very softly, but I kind of love it because she like stays so calm Yeah, she is. in all that she's talking mm-hmm. about. But another lie that that she saw was that feminism was making women less happy, that Mm -hmm. women, we just have this desire, innate desire to be at home and raising families and things like that. That was why we were less happy. But Susan Flutie pointed out, well, it's not true because, first of all, we're still not equal to men. So our equality to men has not made us less happy because... We're still not equal to men. Like, there's still, you know, pay disparity. And she was talking about that, you know, 20, some 27 years ago when we're talking mm-hmm. about it still today. And she was finding that women are happier, women in careers and with other fulfillment outside of the home. That women who had other roles, be it a job or involvement in something else, were happier. So she just found all sorts of other information that countered what was seemed to what she was seeing what kept coming out 
So that was Backlash, which is, I'm pretty sure, how Amy Sherman Palladino and, and Lorelai, therefore, knew about Susan Flutie was because of that book. She's written a couple others since. After Backlash, she wrote the book Stiffed, The Betrayal of the American Man, which feels a little odd. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I did not read these books, but um, just from what I gained from descriptions and reviews, she interviewed a bunch of men who were feeling like they had this pressure to be a certain kind of man in America. And when they weren't living up to that, how that was affecting their life. Okay. But it definitely feels like it's in the same vein of research that she's interested in about gender politics and about how societal pressures try and make you conform to something that maybe the vision society has doesn't really match who you are. Yeah, because certainly if society is putting pressure on men to be a certain way, in the same regard, like, women are, of course, having pressure put on them to be a certain way. So if one gender is feeling the pressure, probably the other one is Mm -hmm. too. So, yeah, yeah, it does make sense. And then she wrote another book, The Terror Dream, and it was about our reaction to 9-11, how mm-hmm. that kind of changed the nations. And then more recently, In the Dark Room, in 2016, it was one of the New York Times 10 best books of the year. It's about Susan Faludi's father, who was transitioning at the time to being a woman named Stephanie. And so it was about Stephanie and Susan's different views of their own femininity and what it meant to them to be women. And it was very different what that meant to Susan versus Stephanie. So this was a, a, from an article in Salon online. It was an interview with Susan about it. The writer of this article said, For Stephanie, her process of becoming a woman depended upon gender stereotypes. For Susan, her process of becoming a woman, and especially a feminist, depended on her shattering those stereotypes. So Stephanie was like, okay, I'm a woman now. I am noticing these different advantages, like men opening doors for me and always feeling the need to help me. Like, these are great advantages. And then (laughs) Susan, of course, back to that, like, no, that's, I'm like trying to break away from all of those. And here you are embracing them. So interesting way to look at mm. someone's transition to a different gender through the eyes of someone who is trying to break the norms of their own gender. If that makes sense. Yeah. So, and I think that kind of helps because sometimes, you know, if it's a different podcast I've listened to, things like that, about someone transitioning, sometimes it's hard for me because I, I don't like hearing my gender being put in a box almost. Sometimes it feels that way. But it's kind of like a brand new experience, right? Like they're experiencing this gender for the first time fully as far as like living it out. So a view on it is going to be totally different than maybe mine. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think especially Susan Faludi being willing to share that story publicly and talking about her own processing with that too. There's a lot to be said there. And that she felt comfortable sharing it publicly. That says a lot yeah. about her. Yeah. So she, yeah, I mean, her whole area of study is gender dynamics and the differences and how that affects you. Just, I mean, gender studies, that's, there's a lot to that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so very, like, I guess because it was happening to her and her perspective as a, you know, gender scientist. I don't know if that's a, that's a term, but... Um, she's a gender journalist for sure. Yeah. Gender journalist. She had that up close and personal experience with, with that. So anyway, so that's her most recent book, but backlash getting back to the original book that brought Susan Flutie out into many of our, our consciousnesses. It came out around the time that Anita Hill and that controversy and her going to up to Congress and giving her testimony happened. So it was on people's minds, and so Susan has said, like, that was helpful because people were thinking about this. How is gender affecting our society in America? And so that was – it came out – she said if it would have come out, like, a year or two ago or, like, during a war, 
probably wouldn't have worked as well because people weren't thinking about that. But honestly, I mean, a lot of the things in the book feel so real to today. I mean, a woman's place in society. I mean, that's that's definitely still being debated. And pay disparity. You know, she talked about the pay gap. And we're still talking about that. Mm-hmm. As she said on her website, the backlash clearly still exists. Well, I would definitely say all of those topics feel relevant today, and it does not seem that anything has been settled, if that makes sense. And not that it necessarily has to, because I don't think we're ever going to be in a place where everybody in a whole country agrees on what one person's place in society should be, for Mm -hmm. better or for worse. But I do think it is something that we are in the midst of a lot of conversation about. Yeah. So Susan Flutie wrote in, uh, said in an article for Medium, This countersault is largely insidious in a kind of pop culture version of the big lie. It stands the truth boldly on its head and proclaims that the very steps that have elevated women's position have actually led to their downfall. So, which that, uh, that sounds like... <laughs> gaslighting i mean Hmm. saying that hey things are better oh but that's actually made things worse for you which doesn't make any sense yeah Mm. so she was seeing a little bit of gaslighting happening i think reminds me a little bit of the andy griffith show when they're trying to convince the world that they're worse off for women (laughs) letting women vote in the town council elections (laughs) yes Oh, good old Mayberry. Yes, although that's much more comical and resolved in 30 minutes or less. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But one interview TV segment I watched with Susan Faludi, which it was a little much. I would say watch it in pieces because of how real it felt to me. She was pitted against Camille Paglia. Which might be how her name is pronounced. And Paglia? she was a Paglia? I don't know. P A G L I A. Yeah, I would guess Paglia, but I don't know for sure. Yeah, it doesn't really roll off the tongue no. for me. But she was another feminist at the time, although I don't know if many people would call her a feminist today, which that's kind of how things go, right? But they were on the Donahue show in nineteen ninety two. And, man, if we aren't still having the same arguments. I mean, they covered all kinds of topics. Some that just made made me cringe were the guy and Camille were like, hey, woman, don't be stupid. Like, if you know that going down a dark alley could get you in trouble or going to a guy's apartment or hotel room or just being alone with a guy in general could cause you harm, well, just don't do it. Don't be an idiot. Am I right? If you leave your car running on the street with the keys in the ignition, expect it to be stolen. And Susan so wonderfully points out, women are not cars. Hmm. Stealing a car is very different from harming another human being. Wait, we're not cars? Yeah. Wait a minute, then why do I have these four wheels and (laughs) an ignition that I need to get places? Oh my gosh. Sorry, you can't see me, but it's been a strange experience the last few weeks. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So, yeah, it's just the the arguments that, well, Donahue brings up, which I think he's trying to be a good guy. I'm not really sure what his, where he was standing. It sounded like he wanted to hear from Susan Faludi and kept telling Camille, let her say something, let her say something. But Hmm. also, I think Susan... She was speaking up, so it's not like he needed to give her permission to speak, but I digress. (laughs) Yeah, just some of the arguments are the same. Like, we hear these all the time, these big, like, grand statements, and you see them in tweets or Instagram posts, whatever. We see them in little bits, but there's no – they sound so like, oh, yes, of course, when you just read one. Mm -hmm. But then if it stops there – then you don't get to take it a step further and think, well, how does that apply in this area, in this area? So like the car analogy, like, oh, yeah, you're right. You know, think about your surroundings to be cautious. But 
women should be able to expect that people aren't going to harm them when they're walking down the street. Because mm-hmm. what is a woman with a key? What's the equivalent of having a key in her ignition? I mean, is that the clothing debate? Like, how short was your skirt? I, mm-hmm. You know, that's it just doesn't hold up. So I'm going to play a short clip so you can kind of get a sense of their conversation, but not the whole thing because take it in pieces. We were inundated with images of them on television. But this was but, a lie in itself then, right. too. Well, think about Beaver's mother. I mean, she wasn't a, a real person. She was a TV Well, she looks so happy, though. <laughs> uh, I didn't know what her life was like. Well, but I think a lot of folks my age are still walking around, and there is a part of us that longs for this peaceful world that did, to be sure, exist on sitcoms. And we do but, have to... But the reality... How is it peaceful? It wasn't um, peaceful or happy for the women who... We're staying at home and I wanted to I just love my new freezer. Well, right, exactly. Um, that woman who said that was paid by Maytag or someone to, to um, be enthusiastic about her new freezer. But the reality is that when you look at the mental health statistics, women who work, women who have more roles in their life instead of less are mm-hmm. the most happy. Um, you know, the other myth is that women who are married are going to be much happier and, than single women. And we kept hearing in the 80s, single women are all depressed and miserable. Well, it turns out, when you look at the mental health statistics, single women are the happiest and healthiest and have the least distress from Really? Really? The, the, flip, the flip side of that yeah. is that among men, the yeah. most unhappy are the single men and the most happy are the married men because marriage works wonderfully for men yeah um i thought that was interesting like single men are less happy than married men she's like because marriage works for men and certainly i i do see how that would be true i feel like i need a lot more context to what those statistics were talking about as we were saying statistics say this Mm -hmm. statistics say that and it's i can imagine implications of those things but having so little context i'm going well what were the factors they considered to make you happy yeah Um, because happiness is such a subjective term so like how were married men more happy than single men how were single women more women more happy than married women and Mm -hmm. but i do think it's an interesting point of conversation for them to have in trying to yeah. talk about the backlash and how things are changing. Yeah, and I that definition, that's probably where different studies have different results. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she was talking from a mental health perspective. So, I suppose is she talking to a study by psychiatrists or... Because also, yeah, there's... I don't know. I guess we'd have to read backlash. Yeah, <laughs> all 550 um, pages. Yeah, but... um could be worth it that would be intriguing to read her book and then maybe like uh what was the book that came out recently that it's on my to read list the we should all be feminists Uh uh-uh the book by rachel traster uh good and mad about the history of women's anger Hmm. and how that's been a force for positive change so it'd be intriguing to read susan faludi from 27 years ago, 28 years ago, to mm-hmm. now. Kind of yeah. seeing what's being written about. but Yeah. Because I'm sure that... the statistics have changed in the last yeah. 20 or something years. At least some. Or, and maybe the studies are different, but they're finding the same thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, it'd, be, it'd be interesting to see. But just from what it sounds like, what Backlash was about, it sounds like what's still being talked about today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is so, like, disheartening. Like, how long are we going to have a conversation before anything happens? And maybe it's just such a slow and steady change. We're not seeing it. I I don't know. Or maybe nothing's new under the sun and it's a conversation that'll be had forever. You know? Oh, good. (laughs) And I don't mean that in a depressing way. I just mean that it's a conversation about how people play a role in society is never going to end because society is always changing and people are always the same. True. So that is Susan Faludi. Don't you forget it. Oh, I will not. (laughs) And I'm going to be dishing out some more now that I don't want you to forget either about another cultural journalist 
who is referenced in this episode of Gilmore Girls in a conversation between Emily and Lorelai. You have to be above this. No, I don't have to be above this. You're seriously telling me that you're going to be the one to go out there and humiliate Gran in front of her friends, in front of her family. Just think about it, Mom. What would Miss Manners do? Kyla, are you familiar with Miss Manners at all? Mm, a little bit. That's about where I was, too. <laughs> I basically knew the name, and that was about it. I figured it had to do with manners and etiquette. Yeah, seems pretty straightforward. And I realized while I was in the middle of my research that I had heard of Emily Post, who is another manners writer, and mm. I think I kind of thought they were the same person. <laughs> they are not. Rookie mistake. <laughs> Here is just a short little summary that I kind of loved on Miss Manners' website because she is still working today. Oh. She was born a perfect lady in an imperfect society. She's a pioneer mother of today's civility movement. Now if she could only persuade people to practice civility as much as they talk about it. That sounds lovely. I know. A perfect woman. <laughs> But I'm going to tell you, the more I researched Miss Manners, the more respect I have for this lady. I am a fan. So she has been writing under the pseudonym Miss Manners since 1978, but her real name is Judith Martin. Hmm. And Miss Manners is a column that still runs today, now three times a week. It's syndicated in more than 200 papers across the United States. And she now shares some responsibilities with her kids, Jacobina and Nicholas Ivor Martin, because she's getting older in age, and so she wants to share the responsibilities. But as this author, she's written other things as well, done some travel writing, she's been a journalist for other topics as well, a film critic, but mostly for Miss Manor, she won the National Humanities Medal in 2005, and... She also does lectures. She's been a guest on TV and radio shows. I watched some clips of her on Colbert and Conan. And she is just so charming and down to earth. I think sometimes we think about etiquette and manners as this really highfalutin thing. Sorry, not highfalutin thing. Highfalutin (laughs) thing that is just so dated and antiquated and very prim and proper and kind of snooty. But mm-hmm. she is totally game on um, the way she was on the show with Conan. He's totally teasing her and she's totally there with it. She's not at all offended by his jokes. Nice. She says she never gets stumped on any questions for Miss Manners because she always goes back to history to find examples from other cultures And she always writes in the third person because she says it gives her more authority. So I think there's also a little more Mm. separation from herself as Judith Martin. When I read these pieces or see her in interviews, I am sure this woman has made faux pas and done things that are rude in her life. But as Miss (laughs) Manners in a persona, it's a little bit different. Yeah. And just a little, I don't know if this is a fun fact, but... (laughs) The etiquette breach she most dislikes, according to one interview I read with her, is the blatant greed in America. People Hmm. scheming to get money and possessions from other people and believe they're entitled to it, whether it's a gift registry or people who claim to be entertaining and telling their guests to bring food, to bring drink, and, and to sometimes even pay. The ancient practices of exchanging presents and of giving hospitality are being undermined by this rampant greed. Oh, Mm -hmm. interesting, because, I mean, even just a birthday party I went to recently, it was a lot of people were invited, and so the host said, bring a dish to pass. I was totally fine Mm -hmm. with that, but Miss Manners would say, "Uh uh-uh. Well, and I think in reading more about her, it's probably some of the context. Like, I think if you know going in, it's a potluck versus, "Mm, just give me money. (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah i have a feeling it depends somewhat on the environment but we can investigate that a little bit i'm glad you were not offended because i think that's the principal rule Hmm. yeah yeah but here's a little bit about how she got started she started as a copy girl at the washington post in 1958 
I'm sorry, what is a copy girl? So you may have heard the term copy boy, which is one I'm more familiar with. According to a little quick Wikipedia definition, it's usually a junior person who works on the newspaper, and they take stories from one section of the newspaper to another. And I think because of the way things work digitally now, this is not needed anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Which is probably why you're unfamiliar. Yeah. But she went on to be a reporter for the Washington Post as well. She worked in both the style and weekend sections. She covered the White House, social events. She was also a theater and film critic. Hmm. And she wrote her first advice column on manners in 1978. So actually about 20 years later, she'd been working there and she talked Mm. her editors into it. And you might know the name Ben Bradley, who was an editor at the Washington Post. If you've seen the movie The Post. Yeah. This is the Tom Hanks role. Wow. Editor of the Washington Post. He came out of his office one day and jokingly said, okay, who's going to do the etiquette beat? And she volunteered for it. (laughs) (laughs) And she said even at that time, the word etiquette was something people didn't use. This kind of made me laugh. She said, that's something from the Victorian era where they had nothing better to do because sex hadn't been invented yet. So they thought (laughs) up little gotcha rules to torture one another. (laughs) (laughs) And she was the one who named herself Miss Manners. And she wasn't even sure that people would be interested in this column when she started it. She thought it would be kind of funny and that it would just be a side project for while she was doing things for the style and weekend sections. Mm -hmm. But it turns out people really responded to it. And especially because in the 60s and 70s, she says there was a lot of the do your own thing, everybody improvising. And it sounds like people just really wanted some civility back. And so there's kind of a pendulum that swings back and forth of when people are going, Mm. oh, we want lots of rules or we don't want lots of rules. So she was the one who named herself Miss Manners, I said. She said, it's like Napoleon. There's no one authorized to crown you, so you just have to crown yourself. (laughs) I like that. And it started as a weekly column, eventually grew into daily column. Like I said, now it's three times a week. And that is kind of like, well, from there it was history. But I really enjoyed some of her writing, so I actually found some of those early movie reviews that she did. She wrote about the original Superman, and I think that Hmm. this almost paved the way for her Miss Manners. (laughs) She says, The character of Superman, as derived from the early superhero comic tradition, is polite, patriotic, and law-abiding. He doesn't destroy villains as they would like to destroy him. He turns them over to the police so they can get a fair trial. And when he does, he is careful to examine the police officer's nameplate to be able to address him properly. Which Oh my word. How perfect is that? So on brand for her. Like all she was paying attention to in that movie was the etiquette of Superman. That's hilarious. Yes. And that came out in 1978, so that was the same year that Miss Manners started. So, you know, she this is something that's important to her in all areas. Mm-hmm. And this is not as related to Manners, but I just thought this review was very funny. She also wrote one for The Empire Strikes Back, a.k.a. Star Wars Episode Five, that came out in 1980. <laughs> she says, The Empire Strikes Back has no plot structure, no character studies, let alone character development, no emotional or philosophical point to make. It has no original vision of the future, which is depicted as a pastiche of other junk culture formulae, such as the Western, the costume epic, and the World War II movie. Its specialty is special effects or visual tricks, some of which are playful, imaginative, and impressive, but others of which have become space movie cliches. But the total effect is fast and attractive and occasionally amusing. Like a good hot dog, that's something of an achievement in a field where unpalatable junk is the rule. (laughs) How? Not a fan of Star Wars. No. And basically she says throughout this, she uses this hot dog junk food analogy saying, it's really good junk food, but it's not a great opera. And while I think some of that criticism is unfounded, the general principle I think rings true. She understands Mm -hmm. this is not a movie that's meant to be on the same level as an Italian opera. This is supposed to be a fun movie. 
Yeah. And it succeeds at that. So let's talk a little bit about her writing as Miss Manners. Okay. I checked out the most recent column that she and her children wrote. Came out July 5th. Most recent at the time we were recording. And just some of the topics that people are writing in about. Someone accidentally spilled coffee in line at the grocery store and said, should I have helped clean it up in the line? And she gave her thought about that. Another Ooh, question. I want to guess. Can Ooh. I guess what her, yeah, for sure. her, what her response was? I think that she would say, <clears throat> based on what you've told me thus far, that yes, she should have, unless it would cause a further disruption for her to stop and help. Well, here's what Miss Manners had to say. Here is how, in Miss Manners' experience, the situation you describe might play out. Clumsy customer. Oh dear, I am so sorry. Please let me clean that up. Person with mop. No, that's okay. I'll get it. Clumsy customer. Thank you so much. That's very kind of you. I really am very sorry. Person with mop. Of course, ma'am. It happens. Happy to help. Miss Manners realizes that you may not have had the chance to offer, and you encountered an unusually surly mopper. But it also sounds as though it was never your intention. That may be what the person with the mop was responding to, however rudely it may have been expressed. Next time, Miss Manners suggests you stick to your part of the script and be prepared to graciously improvise if the person with the mop does not. So basically, it's not your job to clean it up, but it is your job to express regret that this happened and show politeness to this other person and thank them for their part in helping. Nice. Another one, and this is a more modern issue I am certain she did not write about in 1978. <laughs> Dear Miss Manners, my spouse and I are frequently included in group messages. Sometimes these groups include 35 to 70 people. While I have made it known I don't want to wish to be part of mass texts, this continues to happen. Is it rude to add people to these groups without consent? One time after I left a group, the person asked why I did so. I explained that I prefer not to receive that volume of messages. I mean, and basically she says, no, you do not need to be part of these. Yeah. Thank you, Miss Manners. thank you, iPhone, for the mute option. I think other phones have that. I should hope so. I use that all the time because then I can go check the 10 messages that came through when I'm mm. ready. Good call. And one last question someone wrote in about, is it okay to create a font in your handwriting to address wedding invitations and write thank you notes? She says it's fine. How is that a manners issue? I guess because wedding invites are supposed to be addressed by hand. Oh. Traditionally, that's the situation. Hmm. Yeah. Now, I also did something fun. I looked up to see what Miss Manners wrote about on the day this episode of Gilmore Girls came out. Oh, nice. Once again, February 18th, 2003. And it is on the very topic we were touching on earlier about greed. So Mm. someone wrote in and said, I was stunned to receive an invitation where they asked us all as guests to split the bill. So I thought it was extremely bad taste charging your guests for dinner. And Miss Manners basically says, you are right. Miss Manners has been fighting greed and ungraciousness for years with little hope of success as long as people are intimidated by paying up. Even so, she would have thought that a beggar's banquet would be one in which beggars were invited to eat, not one in which the beggar does the inviting. Hmm. Yes. And one last letter this day. Someone wrote in saying, What are the obligations of amateur musicians who act as professional mourners? Basically, what if I am (laughs) performing at a funeral? Do I have to stay the whole time? And basically, Ms. Manor says, well, the etiquette for funerals has gone out the door, so I apologize that these events are much longer and more intimate than they are really meant to be, but no, you cannot leave. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. So I appreciate that even though she is telling someone maybe what they don't want to hear sometimes, she's also sympathetic to their cause. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know about you, but, like, did, did 
Did you ever go to any like etiquette classes or like young lady courses? Yes, I went to at <gasps> least one or two. They were part of the curriculum at school in middle oh. school. And so it was basically etiquette 101 of table settings and proper procedure, that kind of thing. I don't remember everything I learned now, though I kind of okay. wish I could. That would be interesting to remember. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I went to, I had a manners class actually that my mom taught and she had like an owl puppet and I don't know what his name was, like Mr. Manners, something like that. <laughs> and I loved it, but I, like my nana, taught my mom all that and my mom taught me all that as far mm -hmm. as like place settings and fork usage and I think it's kind of fun like it's just it's a little hoity-toity but it's I don't know there's something fun about it well one of the things I appreciated in these interviews I read with her is that she draws on history so much mm -hmm. and looking back at why a lot of these traditions started. So in one interview I read with her, she talks about how the table knife, originally the way it was set at the table was much more important to showing respect for other people. Mm -hmm. So she said back in the court of Louis the 14th, so this is 1600s, mm -hmm. you had to start putting your table knife on the right side of the plate with its sharp fa edge facing inward. And this is because knife fights were still a huge issue at the <laughs> time. And Louis XIV said that knives must be rounded at the top, not threateningly pointed. And she said the rounded tip also stopped people from using their knives to pick their teeth. So table <laughs> knife etiquette enforces two principles of manners, safety and hygiene. <laughs> safety and hygiene so at the time uh, it really was based on an idea of showing respect for and concern for other people now we don't really have knife fights as much but that's kind of how it started although my mom does tell a story of a dinner that she was at mm -hmm. and she had her knife in her hand and she dropped it and was tr kept trying to catch it she ended up catching the knife in the man's lap next to her Oh. out pointed toward him oh. <laughs> she's like so yeah they had a little laugh about that oops good and awkward good i'm glad it was just a funny thing and not a he, how dare you thing yeah <laughs> he didn't draw his knife in return and good no on guard i've met your mother she is lovely and very kind <laughs> i would not suspect her of trying to threaten anyone with a knife no no <laughs> But this is something I appreciate about Miss Manners because she looks to history to try and find these connections to try and give advice for things like email etiquette today and mm. how telephone manners operate because obviously those are really new situations in all of history. But you can look to how other cultures have handled issues to try and find principles. Mm -hmm. And she says the principles of manners are eternal. Respect for others, for example. This is a quote from her. While etiquette is the surface behavior, which can be peculiar to a specific society or a group within a society, etiquette changes, but the principles remain the same. For example, in order to have coherent traffic, everybody has to agree which side of the street they drive on, whether it's in the right as in America or the left as in England. It doesn't matter as long as everybody knows the rule. The mm. principle is they have to be going in the same direction. And it's arbitrary yeah. whether which side you pick. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, I think this is like scratching my own itch of like my love for like grammar mm -hmm. and punctuation rules, like those <laughs> kinds of rules. I love it because it gives an order and there's a reason and it mm -hmm. helps everyone understand what's happening. Mm -hmm. But like I wouldn't say in general... In general, I don't like rules. I like to do my own thing. But in these kinds of grammar and manners, mm -hmm. I kind of dig them. Well, and there's probably a reason for that. In one of her interviews, she talks about why etiquette is so important. And she says, it's important because we can't stand the way that other people treat us. 
although we want the right to be able to behave in any way we want. <laughs> Somehow a compromise is in order if you want to live in communities. If you want to live on a mountaintop by yourself, it's not necessary. And that's just what you have to do to get along with people. And that doesn't mean they walk all over you. Etiquette does not render you defenseless. If it did, even she wouldn't subscribe to it. But rudeness <laughs> in retaliation for rudeness just doubles the amount of rudeness in the world. Nice. Hmm. One last thought from Miss Manners, and I think it's something she should say herself. But she had some thoughts on our current political climate. My fellow Americans. Okay, you, we've had our entertainment. We've had the clash. We've had the election. It is over, and it's time for us to settle down. There are two factors at play here. Um, one is uh, the idea that expressing all your feelings, whether they are presentable or not, uh, is a healthy, good idea. And another one is the contentiousness and the entertainment value of an election where there is all that back and forth and it's exciting to watch and it's drama, but it's not the way that we want to live with that kind of drama. Mm -hmm. And so we've, we've had our excitement and it is time to settle down and be one country and behave ourselves. You know, there's a mistaken idea that uh, etiquette suppresses conflict. And it's the opposite. It enables you to express it and to air conflict and to air your differences. Because, because if you are just calling people names and saying obscene things and yelling at one another, no ideas get expressed, nothing gets settled. That's not the way progress is made. Progress is made when we listen to one another, when we restrain our uglier impulses uh, to treat one another with respect, and then we work out some kind of livable situation for all of us. Mm -hmm. So basically, I am a big fan of Miss Manners. <laughs> and reading some of her columns, not going to lie, there were a few things that I was like, ooh, dang it, I've done that. She called me out on a few things or things where I was going, oh, I haven't done that exactly, but I've definitely done things similar. Mm -hmm. But I really appreciate her outlook and how it's all about just trying to build better communication and how to live as a community. Yeah. And even what she said there in the interview was, we've had our craziness, but overall, no one wants to live in chaos. No. So I thought that was a good point. Mm -hmm. And I have just one more story for you about Judith Martin, not as Miss mm -hmm. Manners. And it's something that if you've watched the movie The Post, you might be familiar with this as well. Because she was actually blacklisted by Richard Nixon from attending his daughter's wedding. <laughs> and why is this? Because she had snuck her way into the first daughter's wedding of Richard Nixon. <laughs> I feel like that is not a Miss Manners way to live. Well, here's a little more context for you. So in 1971, she was blacklisted as a member of the press from attending the wedding of Tricia Nixon. Oh, sorry, I missed that she was a journalist trying to attend, not just a, a guest. No, gotcha. yeah, she was a okay. journalist, and okay. there were journalists expected to attend. And this was because in 1968, she had snuck out of the press area at the wedding of Julie Nixon mm. to try and talk to David Eisenhower. And basically, she was a reporter, she wanted a better viewpoint, and she tried blending in with the bridesmaids. <laughs> Nixon was not a fan and because she was blacklisted Ben Bradley basically said okay if he's going to hold a grudge over this fine we're not going to send anybody from the Washington Post to try and cover this Ooh. wedding and this continued a bad relationship between the Washington Post and Richard Nixon hmm. and they went on eventually not because of this incident but it continued that bad relationship in publishing the Pentagon Papers and continued their adversarial relationship. Wow. So basically, she had a small role in uncovering the Pentagon Papers 
<laughs> you might I say. I love it. <laughs> in having that adversarial relationship between the Post and Richard Nixon. Nice. Basically, she was going to do her job. Yeah. And I love that Ben Bradley was like, okay, if you're going to throw a fit over this, we're done. Yeah. Stick with your people. Mm-hmm. Or rather, stick by your people. Yeah. That's a good way to say it. So that, I think, is everything you need to know about Miss Manners for our show today. Nice. I think I like her. I am a fan as well. Please start a podcast. I would love to listen to a Miss Manners podcast. Yeah. Yeah, I would too. So should we talk about how these references fit in the world of Gilmore Girls? I think so. Should we go back to our friend Susan Faludi? Yeah, let's uh, let's bring her back in. So, Lorelai, basically it seems like what she's saying is that Susan Faludi and her writings and her perspective comes from boys being mean to her. <laughs> uh, I would say now, yeah, jokes, funny. <laughs> but also, mm, that's not that's not why feminists are feminists because boys have been mean to us. Came from years of study and and research, and so I think that's basically what she's trying to say is that Susan wrote this big feminist book, is a leader in the feminist world, and so we need those kind of women, and boys have to be mean to us for that to happen. <laughs> Now, yes, I do get she was joking, and Lorelai, in the way that she lives her life, clearly mm -hmm. does not believe that women are just completely and utterly influenced by their experiences with men, and that's what defines, that would be what would define a woman and cause her to write a 550-page book. So I don't think she genuinely believes that, but she was making the joke, you know? Mm-hmm. You, you learn from your experiences, and... Well, most women have to put up with crappy guys, but that makes us stronger, like Susan Faludi. Mm -hmm. Or is she saying that Rory does not need to put up with all this business from Jess or what Lorelai had to deal with from Brian Hutchins in the seventh grade Sadie Hawkins dance situation? And it's time to start a backlash. <laughs> and you have to realize that not all guys are going to treat you right. And maybe you need to give Jess a phone call and say, I'm not going to sit around and wait for you to call me. So, like, she was telling her to be like Susan Faludi? Maybe. Because she's realizing the situation is not working out in Rory's favor. Mm -hmm. And she's not being treated fairly. And... Maybe she just shouldn't sit around and wait for Jess to call. Which is ultimately what she decides to do. She goes to a hockey game with Lane. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think she is saying, like, a lot of us women have put up with crappy boyfriends. You shouldn't have to. But I think she was saying, like, you know, with that's what most of us had to put up with. Where do you think the Susan Faludis of the world came from? So, mm -hmm. like, she was influenced by, she must have had some bad interactions with men. Which I'm sure Susan Faludi did. Likely. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's uh, how, how that goes down, I think. I think so. I think we're right what, in the ballpark for sure. What about Miss Manners? Well, side note, this whole scene makes me crack up. This idea of Gran, a.k.a. Trix, kissing a man in a purple velour jogging suit is just oh hilarious. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and, of course, the idea of Emily hiding in the bushes trying to watch. And I think the question, what would Miss Manners do, is a question that we should all ask ourselves all the time. <laughs> and I just want to know, Kyla, what do you think Miss Manners would say in this situation? I think she would say, keep what is private, private. And let it rest. And that's basically what Lorelai is saying. She is calling to a higher authority, much like Miss Manners does when she <laughs> writes in the third person. 
Yeah. Yeah, I think Lorelai had it right. I also think that what we read in these interviews from Miss Manners talking about how retaliating because of rudeness with rudeness makes nothing better. Mm -mm. But you also don't have to be a doormat. And Mm -hmm. so I think the follow-up conversation Trix and Gran have later where Emily is apologizing for what she did but also saying the way you treat me is really not fair is a much better Miss Manners approved conversation. I know how important your pride is to you and I never had any intention of robbing you of it. I feel terrible that I caused you any pain. I just wish that Once in a while, you might feel a little bit terrible that you caused me pain. I have pride, too, you know. And my husband travels and is very busy, and I miss him, and I'm lonely sometimes. Just like you. Well. So, Taylor? So, Kyla? That's our show? That's our show! What? I am so glad I got to learn about these two awesome women. Yeah. And how they've influenced our world. Yeah. And I think they're both pretty good role models for Rory as a journalist. I think so. She was not in this conversation about Miss Manners in this episode, but I'm pretty sure she's familiar with Judith Martin. I'm sure she is. Throwing out all those journalist names. Mm-hmm. But you guys, tell us what you think about Miss Manners, Susan Flutie. Have you read anything from them? Have you read 550 pages <laughs> A backlash. Maybe just a few columns from Miss Manners. Both are respectable reading materials. Yes. And actually, Miss Manners has written over a dozen books. Oh, well. So there you go. You have book options as well. Up the w- Out the wazoo. <laughs> I'm not sure that's how Miss Manners would put it, but okay. Yes, I do like the, the word wazoo. <laughs> you know what that's from? No, I don't. It is when Lorelai is trying to get a loan. Oh. <laughs> oh my goodness I got gracious. references out the wazoo. I wish I could be as witty as Lorelai all the time. Yeah, same. Leave us a review on iTunes, guys. Let us know what you think about the show. Share with all your friends. Sign up for our tiny letter. Go check out our Tumblr. Those links are in, our, in the episode description. Woohoo! Woohoo. And uh, we'll talk to you next time. Here's a teaser for our next step. You're blocking the list. What's that? Will we please move so you may sign up for the speech contest? Why, yes, Paris, we'd be happy to. How kind of you to phrase it in that very respectful manner. You going to move? Or do you need a five, six, seven, eight? Paris, this time on stage has been a very growing experience for me. I'm no longer intimidated by you or people like you. I'm thrilled to hear it, Cheetah Rivera. Move. Well, Gilmore, I certainly hope you're signing up, too. You're my last chance to trounce you at anything at this school. My decision to do this will in no way depend on you, Paris. I'm only saying it won't be a totally satisfying victory just beating Jerome Robbins and the rest of the losers here. I'd really like to take you down also. Boy, she is really up on her theater references.